I'm going to shift gears here a little bit. I invite you to turn into your Bibles to Psalm 104. We're going to do a lot in Psalm 104 today. Our Heaven and Hell series is over, and we're shifting gears into the holiday season. Thanksgiving is coming up, and uh, there's an awful lot of opportunity out there. And so we're talking about abundance versus scarcity. And I'm, I'm not out for debate or trying to start an argument, but the idea of the origins of the earth, origin theory, whether creation, as in Genesis, or in Darwinian evolution, which one of those you take on as your predominant worldview will affect how you see abundance or scarcity. In this particular subject, if you hold that God created the world in perfection and beauty and in order, you and the biblical authors would see the world in view of abundance and goodness and enough. But if you hold the world came about by chance, by billions of years of random selection and mutation, then the lens through which you see the world by default is, well, survival of the fittest. It's a world marked by death and competition and not enough. And if you hold, third rail here, that if God used the evolutionary process over billions of years, that's probably another conversation altogether. Here's very quickly what I see. That you somehow have to mix the character of a generous, creative God with the hands-off, random approach of tooth-and-nail survival and mutation. It's just not a worldview the biblical authors held. But I wonder if most of us here, generally speaking, would fall in a mixture of the first two. In this, that we have the head knowledge that God created the world good and adequate and abundant, but the world we experience seem very different. God created it with generosity and abundance, but sin entered that world and set everything in a downward spiral, made things really hard, entered death into the picture. But even so, even in that broken world, Jesus and the biblical authors still saw the world in terms of goodness and abundance of God. From everything we've been told, everything we've been taught, all the nature documentaries that I've seen. Anybody raised on Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom? You know, you can go to Carthage, Missouri and see the sculpture there of Marlon Perkins sitting there with the binoculars. I don't know. Everything that we've been taught about creation, about the world, it's a very harsh place. It is literally, the, the animal kingdom is at each other's throats in survival mode. And people are constantly battling with words and weapons. Much of the world's population is at risk. Millions die every year from famine, war, disease. Selfish people take for themselves and their tribe while others suffer. It seems there's never enough. Meanwhile, Jesus tells us not to worry. And the Apostle Paul says to give thanks in all circumstances. Do you feel the tension here? Or am I the only one? 
Is Jesus living in some kind of hippie utopia world? Somehow irresponsible or not very mindful of his conditions, or not very mindful of the world. Is, is the Apostle Paul in some kind of best-case scenario mode when he says, well, give thanks in every situation? No, I don't think so. I think it's a tension between worldview. How you see the world determines your attitude and your mindset. Do you see a world of abundance where a generous God has provided enough and you can rest and be thankful in it? Or do you live in a world of scarcity where there's never enough and you have to fight and scrape and beg in order to get by? Well, what worldview did Jesus have? I mean, if we're going to be Jesus' followers and we're going to think like Jesus and act like Jesus and operate as Jesus operated, I want to know what Jesus thought of the world. How did he see it? Well, I think the world in Jesus' day wasn't any easier than it is today. In fact, it might have been harder. The nation of Israel had lost their sovereignty hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Every hundred years or so, another major world empire would take their turn at beating up God's people, taking everything that they wanted. By the time Jesus was born, the beastly presence of the Roman Empire cast a looming shadow over God's people. Taxation was incredibly high. Justice was scarce. No representation. God's promise of deliverance seemed far, far away. It's in that context that Jesus began his ministry. And what did he begin saying when he began his public ministry? What was his message? Repent. Why? The kingdom's here. The kingdom of God is coming. It's near. It's here. Repent and believe the good news. Good news? What good news? What kingdom are you talking about? Jesus' teaching wasn't inflammatory in the way of political rhetoric. It wasn't typical of rebels and insurgents. It was a message of a kingdom of people who were poor in spirit. Might have also been poor financially. It was a kingdom full of people who were hungry and thirsty for right living with God, who might have also been hungry and thirsty in their bellies. It was a kingdom of people who... When it came to their enemies, they loved them and they prayed for them and they blessed them instead of retaliating and fighting. It was a kingdom of forgiveness that he preached. He was calling people who would operate in that present darkness as angels of light, agents of light, who would hold the things of this world a little loosely. Okay? Not to worry about things like food, and clothes, or tomorrow. And in a culture where you scraped enough food for that day, in a culture where you didn't have a pension, in a culture where there was no guarantee that your job would be tomorrow, or that your rains would come and make a crop, there's no crop insurance. In that world of substance living, he says, don't worry about tomorrow. What, what are you on, Jesus? I mean, what world are you living in? He spoke directly into our, our anxiety-ridden hearts, and he called us to see the world as he saw it. A world of God's goodness and blessing and a place where a thankful heart, a generous heart, would help move people from scarcity and fear 
to abundance and peace. Where did he get this stuff? He was raised in a world at war, surrounded by threats and oppression, no different than what we're in. But he was also raised in a culture that had sacred writings that formed the character of his people over centuries and how he viewed the world. Yes, he was God in the flesh, don't, but don't go being like, well, he was Jesus. No, yeah, he was, and he was God in the flesh, but he didn't come like preloaded in the manger with all this stuff in his head. He had to learn it. Like any other kid in Hebrew school, he had to engage with his father in prayer. He had to learn obedience through suffering. And he chose the right way every single time. He had to learn and apply it. And his parents and those around him raised him in the Hebrew scriptures that spoke of God as a generous father and creator. Here's where Psalm 104 comes in. Psalm 104 is, a, is one of those creation psalms. There are a few others like it. But Psalm 104 is a meditation on Genesis 1. And let's just go through it. A poetic meditation on Genesis 1. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his ser- the winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. Keep going down. He set up the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with the deep as a garment, and the waters stood above the mountains. But at your rebuke, the waters fled. The sound of your thunder they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains, and they went down into the valleys, the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross, and never again will they cover the earth. Do you see the first two days of creation right there? Do you see him setting himself, let there be light, and he clothed himself in light. Do you see him separating the waters from the waters and creating atmosphere? And then dry ground appears, and he sets the waters in their place. Do you see the poetic meditation on Genesis 1? God's doing all of these things to set up the world to be put in order. And then he begins to fill it. Verse 10. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. God does that. It flows between the mountains, and they give water to the beasts of the field, and the wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the air nest by the waters. So now we have now we have creatures and we have birds. Verse 13, he waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. I thought the rain came from clouds, like, you know, evaporation from wind and, you know, the water cycle that we all learned in seventh grade science class. Well, according to the biblical authors, God makes it rain. (laughs) It's his work. And the earth is what? It is satisfied. It's good by what he does. Verse 14. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for men to cultivate. So it's God that makes all this grass grow for the cattle and the sheep and the goats. He brings forth food from the earth. And also wine that gladdens the heart. Oil to make his face shine and bread that sustains his heart. God makes all this grow. According to the work of humans as well, we're co-creators with God. 
it's by the sweat of our brow, according to the curse in Genesis 3, but he makes the waters come and he makes the grass grow and he makes the plants grow for our food. Verse 16, the trees of the Lord are well watered. You know, that water that's underneath the ground that he put there, deep springs. The trees, literally in Hebrew, the trees of Yahweh. Yahweh's trees. These are God's trees. He waters them. He planted them. And their birds make their nests there. The stork has its home in the pine tree. The high mountains belong to the wild goats. And crags are refuge for the uh, conies or hyrax, or rock badger, or whatever they are, those little furry, little mammals things. Oh, and he, goes, he gets back, oh, forgot day four, here we go. The moon marks off the seasons. The sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night. All the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions, they roar for their prey. They seek their food from God. God gives them their food. The sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down to their dens. And then man goes out to work, to his labor till evening. So the lions have the night shift. And then, you know, guys come out and start working. And then he reflects on the goodness of God and says, How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. And then I wonder if he took a step back and went, Oh, the earth. Yes, what about the ocean? Oh yeah, the ocean. Oh wow, we haven't gotten to that yet. Verse 25, here's the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. And, and there goes the ships. There's the work of the Lord. Well, I thought, I thought people made ships. Yes, but God made the trees grow that had to be cut down to make those ships. God made, God, we're co-creators with God. God helped make the ships. There go the ships. And then, and the Leviathan. The Leviathan. You know what that is, right? That's a sea monster. That's like nothing to be messed with. That's like a big old sea dragon thing. And, and he's talking to his Canaanite neighbors here. He's, you know, the, the ones that made gods out of these kinds of creatures. These other cultures worshipped Leviathan as a god. And the psalm writer says, God made Leviathan to play in the water. How cute. Oh, did you see what he did there? You just blinked that little splash. Oh, what a cute little Leviathan you are. How wonderful. Notice the difference in the, in just in the attitude. Verse 27, those all look to you. They all look to God to give them their food at the proper time. And when you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're satisfied with good things. God opens his hand. And he gives food. We were in Colorado this past summer, and these little squirrels and, and chipmunks and things, they know tourists. They, they know. And so you get down there with a little cracker, and that little, that little chipmunk comes right up and just takes it right out of your hand and scurries away. Or you get up on that, that mountaintop, um, and you hold up a cracker, and that bird just flies right and perches on your hand, takes that cracker, and flies away. I just think that's, that's God just... Hand and eat the food. There's the food. There's the food. What, a, what abundance that is. And they're satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they're terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. And when you send your breath, your spirit, same word, breath, spirit, they're created. And then he just begins to praise the Lord. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. 
May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, he just touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. Wouldn't you want to sing to a God like that? I will sing praise to my God as long as I live and may my thoughts and meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. But sinners, oh no, sinners, they're messing it up. The sinners, they need to go away. The wicked need to be banished. They need to go. God's good world needs to stand unaltered, unruined. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul, praise the Lord. It's scriptures like these and others, meditations on the very nature of God, the generosity of God, the abundance of the world that he made. Jesus knew these in very deep and personal levels. Was Jesus ever hungry? Yes. Did he suffer pain? Yes. Was his family in want and in need? Absolutely. He knew suffering and oppression. He knew uncertainty. He knew what it was like to be cold and thirsty and in pain. He knew injustice by, against his people by an empire that believed themselves in every way superior. And yet, and yet, he spent time looking at birds and flowers and said things that just kind of confused people even now. Like stuff like in Luke 12, 22. And Jesus said, this is why I tell you not to worry about life, whether you have enough food to eat or clothes to wear. I mean, I don't know if it, it, it can happen, and it does happen, where people get to wintertime and they're like, I don't have a coat. That happens. And so we need to get in gear and get people warm clothes. But a lot of us, we look at our closet and think, do I have a coat that I think is cool to wear this winter? You know, I mean, that's our problem. We, we, don't, we, don't, we have a coat, but, ah, oh, man, that's, that coat's been old. I don't know. It, what's enough for you? What's enough for me? Jesus said, don't worry about that. Whether you don't have a coat, whether you have a closet full, don't worry about it. Life's more than food. Your body more than clothing. Look at the ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store in barns. God feeds them. Right out of Psalm 104. You are far more valuable to him than any birds. Can your worries add a single moment to your life? Answer, no. And if worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, what's the use of worrying over bigger things? Look at the lilies, how they grow. They don't work. They don't make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for flowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Oh, you who trust God so little. And don't be concerned about what to eat or what to drink. Don't worry about such things. And here's the rub. These things, he says, dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. Ouch. This is what the unbelieving world worries about. But you serve a God who is generous and abundant. Don't worry about that stuff. Unbelievers worry about that. Your Father knows what you need. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and he will give you everything you need. And he finishes by saying, so don't be afraid, little flock. It gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. What's first on God's list to give us? The kingdom. How's he feel about it? He's ecstatic. He's rejoicing. Look what I get to give you guys. I get to give you a kingdom. And I get to bless you. So what's Jesus' response? What's his application? 
sell your stuff and give it away. And this will store up treasure for you in heaven. Purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it. No moth can destroy it. Because wherever your treasure is, that's where the desires of your heart will also be. See, Jesus didn't just believe these things. He practiced them in order to teach his disciples to operate the same way. Which is why in Mark 6, he was able to see a sea of people in front of him. 5,000 men plus women and children. And it says in Mark 6, 35, late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. But Jesus said, you feed them. You give them something to eat. And of course, the guys are like, with what? what? How in the world? Are, are, it would have to work for months to earn enough money to feed all these people just one meal. And Mark includes something here, a question from Jesus that I think defines this entire conversation. How much bread do you have? Go look. Go find out what is there available. And they came back and they said, we have five loaves of bread and two tins of wild herring fillets. <laughs> seasoned with cracked pepper. Sustainably harvested from the clear cold waters of the North Atlantic. This is what we have. And some kid gave us this. And I don't, the text doesn't tell us, but I can imagine that there were some people that actually had something in the folds of their robe, and, and they're like, I ain't giving my bread up. I mean, I, I'm hungry. I brought this for me and mine. I mean, I got kids here too. I'm not, I'm not giving up my lunch. I'm not going to make my kid hungry. And that, we would say, is noble, sir. But this kid gave up his lunch. And what kid eats five loaves of bread? Well, my kid does. But anyway, what, what kid needs five loaves of bread? I'm sure it was more for just for him, but he gave it to Jesus. Because understand, this is what I understand. The reason Jesus made the disciples sweat it out a little bit wasn't because he needed something to work with. He could have very well taken the whole thing on, his, on, on himself. He could have just had everybody say, hey, reach down, pick up a rock, everybody, find a stick, raised it up, and he could have just said, boom, bread, fish, everybody eat, let's party. Okay? I mean, he could have done that. It was, it was one of the tempters said, you can turn these stones to bread. Look at, look at the power you'll have. Look at, look at all the things that you can provide for yourself. Look at the audience that you'll get. Look, look at all the stuff that you could do. But what he did was he asked, how many loaves do you have? Go find out. And I think if it would have been any one of us, that kid would have come up with his little lunch, and he's got this wide-eyed look like, what's he going to do with this? I don't know, you know, but, you know, like a child. Faith like a child. You can have it. And any one of us would have looked at that little kid and said, oh, how cute. 
How wonderful. What a heartwarming story. You know what, kid? How about you just keep your lunch? I, I think, the, let's just clap for the kid, okay? Let's, let's, make, let's make him, you know, feel good about his offer. But you can keep that. We'll take care of it. That's not what Jesus did. He took the offering with childlike faith. And I think the question stands for us. We see need all around us that's completely impossible for us to humanly meet. And it's, it's suffocating what kind of need that surrounds even our own homes sometimes. And there's way too much month at the end of the money. And we're like, how is this ever going to turn out? And Jesus says, what do you have? Go find out. Your neighbor needs something or your family needs something. And I've already given them all kinds of loaves and fish, Jesus. Go find out. What do you have? What do you have? Because you'll only be able to answer the question, what are you willing to part with in order that God may use what he's already given us to bless other people? See, it's not even mine to keep. I didn't create this. God gave it to me to begin with. We've heard this again and again. But you'll only, you'll only be able to find out what you're willing to part with if you answer the question, do you see the world through God's abundance or through incredibly scarce, fearful mentality? If you see the world through abundance and being incredibly thankful for what you have, you'll have a lot looser fingers. And God can multiply that and he'll use it One really uh, very practical way that this plays itself out is Thanksgiving dinner at church, right? I mean, you know, you bring a bowl of potatoes or you bring a pie or you bring some cranberry sauce or somebody brings a turkey or a ham and, and all of a sudden, you know, like, I, oh, wait, I forgot to bring anything. Oh, man. Okay, well, you can come and, you can come and eat anyway. You know, it's okay. It doesn't matter. You will, there's enough. There's enough. Just come on in. Grab a plate. And so I brought some rolls, but I get to get my plate, and I get to put meat, and I get to put potatoes and noodles, and I get to put uh, vegetables and a little bread, and I, get to have, I, get, I have to have an entirely other plate to get my dessert. And I have to, you know, I'm balancing the drink and all this kind of stuff, and I get to my table, and I'm like, oh, there's more than enough here. There's so much more than enough. When Jesus is Lord and the people of God, Act like the people of God, there's always enough. Will it sometimes seem like there isn't enough? Yes. Sometimes that's God's way of leaning on his people to provide. Will Jesus test us to see if our idea of enough matches his? Here's, here's the rub. Maybe your idea of enough, God's like, whoa, that's way too much. Take some of that frosting off that cake. You don't need that. Okay? Maybe it's God teaching us contentment. A little bit of letting go, not being so selfish. Will we grow on our understanding of what enough really is? Yeah. And that's why of teaching us dependence. Nobody enjoys being dependent on anyone. But dependence on God is the key to this whole thing. And a deep sense of gratitude is the result. And we see the world in terms of God's abundance. And we can say it's not even mine to keep hold of. We want to keep hold of it to take care of our, our own and our tribe. 
But what he's calling us to do is to hold it loosely, to be thankful for it and be willing, to be willing to answer the question, what do you have? Go and look. Let's pray together. Father, when it comes time to the holidays, there's so much that we want to do for us on our own. We've been saving up or we've got things that we, we enjoy doing and it's, it's not all bad by any means. But I pray that we would um, keep gratitude as a centerpiece and that we would keep your generosity in the forefront of our minds as the reason that this is any of us, any of this is possible to begin with. So may that be the motivator for our generosity this season. May gratitude be what uh, fuels whatever it is that you ask us, what do we have? Go look. And that we can take that as, as an offering, we can bless it, you can bless it, and you can bless others because of it. So help us not to worry about being generous. I think we have anxiety about letting go of stuff, but call us to deeper walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.